This episode of Origins is presented by MX Gold. The new American Express Business Gold Card makes earning rewards easy. Business Gold Card members automatically earn four times membership reward points on the top two select categories where they spend the most each month. Business Gold also provides access to a suite of solutions, including a built-in pay-over-time feature, giving business owners tools and flexibility they need to successfully run and grow their business. For full benefits and terms, visit mx.co slash business. Hey, I'm Jim Miller. Welcome back to Origins, Sex in the City. This is episode three, one, two, and out. One of the great thing was how much female empowerment it showed. And then it showed the flip side too. I mean, I think that's one thing that girls went even farther with is showed that actually sometimes women characters that we love and admire are having sex that's really horrible and that they don't even want to be having, but somehow they find themselves doing it. When we were scoring the first movie, and I'd never been to a live scoring of a movie, you know, the screen's on, and I looked at this 100-piece orchestra, and there was a woman who ostensibly was a music nerd. She's a violinist. She was about 48, and I looked, and she had leopard skin tights on under her nerd outfit. And I said to her, as she was going on break, I like your tights, she said. I wore them because I was playing Sex in the City. And I knew that that energy from that tight was going up through her and coming out of that bow and going into the movie because she was connected to it. I'm not in a cat fight with anybody. I've not publicly ever said anything unfriendly, unappreciative about Kim because that's not how I feel about her. Am I sorry that there is a public sort of cloud that exists now it's not because I ever said anything even remotely mean so the idea that there's cat fights or like we just couldn't have functioned I could not I would have had stomach aches every day if it was a place that wasn't happy or healthy or productive or people weren't being treated well it wouldn't have existed it just it's a manufactured interesting chapter that will be I think examined differently in time. See, this is the thing about us. We've had so many weird endings, right? Like we end and we don't end, we end, we don't end, we end, we don't end. And I'm an optimist, obviously, because I play Charlotte. So in my mind, we never end. In my mind, we're not over now. Once again, we begin by thanking everyone who participated while unhappily noting that Kim Cattrall declined our invitation. Kim said through a representative that she felt she had no more to say about sex in the city. So when appropriate in this episode... We will use comments of hers from past public interviews to make sure her perspective is covered. Now, back to our story. HBO certainly didn't want Sex and the City to end, but it wasn't up to them. For her part, Kim Cattrall told British host Jonathan Ross that the series was ending because she, specifically, had demanded more money and been turned down. How's that for unusual candor? Said Cattrall, quote, I felt that after six years, it was time for all of us to participate in the financial windfall of Sex in the City. She told Ross that if the show were renewed, she expected to be paid $1 million per episode, up from the reported $350,000 she had been getting. When they didn't seem keen on that, she said to Ross, I thought it was time to move on. But Michael Patrick King agrees to disagree. It was not a matter of money, he says, but time. Just a matter of time. I did have an overall overreaching sense of when it was time to leave 
And I did say to Sarah Jessica before the sixth season, we're done. HBO did not want to be done. I said to Sarah Jessica, I think we should do one last season and get out because we can't go up the wall anymore without turning this into a different show. And this show is done. And she said, okay, I hear you. I believe you. We went to HBO and said, we're going to be done after six years because we're done. And I was very heightenedly aware to leave before people said, to me, literally, I left everything on the floor. It was in the moment. I was writing the last scene and I realized I'm going to name him. I'm going to say Mr. Big's name right now. It came into my head as I was writing that last phone call. His name comes up on the phone. You see the word John. When I handed that script to the other writers, they were like, it just, his name is John. Because now he said, I love you. You're the one. Your name's John. He's real now, so he has a name. But it was all like that. Everything about it. That was what was so thrilling about it. The Sex and the City finale, after six seasons and 94 episodes, was an era's end, all right. And for the most seriously dedicated fans, it would be like losing your four best friends all at once. The proverbial fell swoop. No more cosmos, no more debriefing brunches, no more walks through the city with arms linked in warm camaraderie. The final episode was titled An American Girl in Paris. Appropriately enough, there was a big fashion angle to the big goodbye. The dress, the dress, the dress. This is my favorite Pat Field story. I was writing the finale where Carrie goes to Paris. I get a call from Pat downstairs in her costume room. Come on down, I need to talk to you. So I go down, and the costume room by that point was practically a soundstage. It was half a giant room filled with clothes. By then, it was like a Brinks truck of jewelry and clothes. Everybody wanted everything on those girls by the last season. They could have anything. There were nine-hour costume fittings overnight. It was a wet dream of clothing for designers and actors. So I walk in, Pat's in there, and sitting on the tuft is this gigantic Versace couture gown. The one that Carrie wears in the Paris scene, the Millefeuille, the last scene. She goes, this just came from Paris. It wants to be in the show. (laughs) And I said to her, Pat, how would it get there? She doesn't have that big a luggage. How in reality would Carrie Bradshaw have that dress and how she w- would she get it to Paris? It's, it, it can't. It, she can't fit that in a thing. It's impractical. She would never bring it. And she goes, I'm just saying it's Versace. <laughs> and I said, no, I can't. I can't do it. It's great. I get it. It's amazing. It's not realistic at all. Look at it. It's not realistic, Pat. I get it. No. I turned, walked across the threshold, and some magical thought dragged me by the collar, turned me around, and said, okay, I'll just pretend she packed it. And it became a thing that no one could not talk about. He said that. He initially said to you, no, it's too big. It's how did she get it from there, and how did she fit in her suitcase and everything? Yeah, I don't live in that reality. (laughs) And my reality for Paris was like, Carrie was an American girl in Paris, like Gigi or, you know, something like that. 
that was my inspiration. You know, but the way I don't sit and count what did this cost and how did she pay for it, I don't count how she fits it in her suitcase. Successful shows are ones that elevate, inspire, and, you know, I think if you get too caught up in reality, like how does the girl afford all those shoes or this or that, I think it just kills it. Sometimes the clothes are the words. And it was so much more important than the reality. The reality part can sometimes be forgotten for the magic part. And it taught me a big lesson as a writer. Like from then on, I was like, does it really matter? Does it really matter? But you have to be open. And Pat was right. And I was happy. And it was ridiculously decadent. When the show itself ended, the actual series, that was rough. Even though at the time we believed that the first film was going to happen. We had a contract. We were on hold specifically. But it was still devastating. Like we stood on that street. We have pictures of it from the paparazzi and sobbed for a while. Like a while. <laughs> like little children, you know. And then we had to go to the SAG Awards on the night that the finale aired. I was super, super exhausted. I just remember just being like, I don't even know if I can stand up exhausted, right? Just emotionally as well, like physically and emotionally exhausted. We had done Oprah. I cried like a baby on Oprah. I did like the ugly cry on Oprah. And, you know, Oprah's against the ugly cry. So I felt really guilty that I did the ugly cry on Oprah. But the fans were like crying at us. Do you know what I'm trying to say? It was like all this emotion coming towards us about the ending. So it was really hard to have your own feelings and everybody else's feelings. You know, it was just intense. So we go to the SAG Awards. It's my turn to talk when we win the Ensemble Award, which is petrifying. Okay, I am the most not good talking in public of the a whole bunch, right? Like, really horrible. And I absolutely should have had Michael Patrick write me some jokes, but I forgot. So I was just like, oh, God, what am I going to say? But it was to the actors, so I thought, well, I want to acknowledge the male actors who've helped us because I would look in the audience and there were so many of them. But then there was like a long pause. And then Kim thought that I didn't know what to say, so she came in and then it was like weird. And then I was just like, I'm too tired to even deal with this. So then I went home and I just cried for like three hours, basically while the show was airing. It was sad. I could cry now thinking about it. The show ended, and then you came back and did a movie. Then there was more space. Then you did another movie. And I have to tell you that scene where you're in the restaurant, you see Big, you go into the street, and your water breaks. That was the first day of shooting. Can you believe Michael Patrick did that to me? I was like, Michael! But in some ways it was fun because I love working with Chris because Chris is great, great, great actor and fun to work with and super supportive. The thing that I didn't know was that there were going to be like 500 people standing on the street, including journalists with notepads. And there was a time where they were like, let's take some pictures. So we would go over to the fans to take pictures. But then in the middle would be like people from Us Weekly with notepads. And Chris would start talking, which, you know, Chris, you can't ever tell Chris not to talk. And I'd be like, we have to go back. Bye, everybody. Chris, stop talking. Because we were under like super intense pressure not to reveal anything. But of course, I had my baby bump. And I had said to Michael, you know, are you sure? I mean, I've got to get from my trailer to the set. I don't know how we're going to do this. And he was like, it's okay. I was like, okay. I don't want to see you. I'm so mad at you. I was always on your side. And you go and you do that to Carrie. No, no. I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to waste tears on you. I cursed the day you were born. 
I think my water just broke. Oh. 23andMe is named for 23 pairs of chromosomes that make up our DNA. It's a personal genetic service that helps us understand what our DNA is, and it can tell you a lot about you and your family story. This Thanksgiving, after your great uncle has tryptophan and is distracted by football, he might be tempted to talk about your family ancestry. Problem is, he may not be remembering it all too well. With 23andMe, there's no guesswork. You can see how your DNA breaks out across 150 regions worldwide. You can trace parts of your ancestry to a specific group of individuals from a thousand plus years ago. You can even opt in and connect with DNA relatives and find other 23andMe customers who share your DNA and ancestors. Discover the origins of your maternal and paternal ancestors and how they moved around the world over thousands of years. This is why we at Origins love 23andMe. It's all about the ultimate origin, where we all came from. Now through Thanksgiving, 23andMe Ancestry Service Kits are only $49 per kit when you buy three or more kits. Order your 23andMe Ancestry Service Kit at 23andMe.com slash origins. That's the number 23andMe.com slash origins. I was with a friend this summer at a store helping her pick out a couch. It took 10 minutes to grab a salesperson, and then he disappeared for another 10 minutes after we asked what other colors were available. When we finally got to order, only then did we find out it would take 10 weeks and the delivery charges were going to be more than $100. I wish she had known about Article Furniture then. Article is an online-only furniture company that offers great selection, great prices, and most importantly, great quality. So several weeks ago, I went on to Article.com and got my first look at the Scandinavian simplicity of Article's modern furniture. Clean lines, awesome fabrics, and their pricing was downright surprising. Turns out that when you don't have to pay for showrooms and salespeople, you actually can price things lower than your competition. I wound up picking out several items, and Article has a flat rate of $49. And because my items were in stock, they arrived within two weeks. By the way, Article offers a 30-day return policy as well, so you can actually live with your furniture for a month before deciding if it works for you. Now, Article is offering our listeners $50 off their first purchase of $100 or more. To claim this, visit article.com slash origins. That's all it takes. Go to article.com slash origins and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash origins to get $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more at article.com. In order to understand the dynamics involved in the third Sex in the City movie not getting made, one needs to play capital O Origins and go back to the very beginning of the series itself. Okay, here's the reality. When HBO decided to do Sex in the City, there was no HBO. You understand? There was the fights. We came on, then Sopranos came on in the winter. So Sarah Jessica Parker was a movie star. No movie stars were doing TV. So you can imagine the deal that Kevin Huvane got for Sarah Jessica Parker to go star in a show with the word sex on, on a fights channel. All right, start there. There was no comparable anything. The show doesn't exist if Sarah Jessica Parker isn't the blonde star of this show. Okay, that's number one. So the first contract is unapproachable in any stratosphere. It doesn't matter. Legally, it can't ever be touched. 
Kim was not at the height of her career. Kristen was under her in terms of notability. And Cynthia was a theater actress. Their contracts reflected that stratus. As the show progressed, the characters, everybody grew. It became a family. Kristen and Cynthia and Sarah Jessica became one group. Kim never joined the triumphant mentally. Kristen and Cynthia became, they went in the light. They became like those two ladies. They understood it was Sarah Jessica's name. Look at the posters. Kim fought and said, I'm everyone's favorite. And Sarah Jessica said, yeah, that's why the show worked. You were certain people's favorites. They loved you. Certain people loved Kristen and people liked Cynthia, but you were the favorite and that's why the show worked. That doesn't mean you're being punished. And everybody got escalated. Everybody moved as the movie went on, but the stratus was set. No one was ever going to touch that. Her name was contractually, legally, righteously, the only name on the poster due to the fact she was a movie star in 1998 when the series started. And she did a leap to do a show about sex on the channel that did the fights. And it doesn't matter how popular you are, and I guess for Kim, it didn't matter how much the Rays became if there was never parody, but there never was going to be parody. For virtually the entire length of the series, the cast had been dogged by rumors of infighting on the set, even though there was scant evidence. Tabloid gossips grasped that every trickle of evidence suggesting the existence of feuding, whether two-way, three-way, or four-way. Quite simply, there were sexist and unrealistic expectations that the four women would all be as close as the characters they play. The never-ending focus on their off-screen personal relationships supported the illusion that if the women weren't constantly hugging and smiling, well then, obviously, they had to be fighting. In a Daily Mail interview back in January of 2010, Kim Cattrall said, quote, People don't want to believe that we get on. They have too much invested in the idea of strong, successful women fighting with each other. It makes for juicy gossip. The truth of us being friends and getting along and happily doing our jobs together is nowhere near as newsworthy. She also said, I think Sarah is fantastic. She is a born leader and she guides the crew and the cast in such a strong but gentle way. She and I are sick of this. It's exhausting talking about it and a real bore. Next, Kim went even further in her acceptance speech after winning the 2003 Golden Globe Award for Best Supporting Actress in a TV Series, Musical, or Comedy, thanking, quote, three women who have literally changed my life, the great Sarah Jessica Parker, the wonderful Kristen Davis, and my heart, Cynthia Nixon. It's an honor to be nominated with you, Cynthia. And then Cattrall added, men may come and go, but women stay. But that was before the third movie fell apart. So what could be the explanation for the 180 degree turnaround from agreeing to do the first two movies? Was it what many believed to be solely a function of dollars? Was there anything else? Cattrall strongly denied a report that she wanted a pledge to do a new series with Michael Patrick King in exchange for being in the third movie. But that idea was DOA anyway. People close to Kim believe she never wanted to do the third movie, period. And they point to two large issues that made it impossible for anyone close to her to talk her into doing it. First, although each woman was to get $1 million up front, 
They believed the way the back end had been divided up among the five, the four women and Michael Patrick King, was unequal and unfair. And second, people close to Kim believed that the script for the movie didn't have a lot to offer the character of Samantha. They point to the fact that it calls for Mr. Big to die of a heart attack in the shower relatively early on in the film, making the remainder of the movie more about how Carrie recovers from Big's death than about the relationship between the four women. We negotiated in good faith. You know, we wanted it to be a place that felt good to everybody. And if we were aware that contractually there were any issues, we hoped that they were settled because we wanted Kim to be there. Michael and I worked all summer. I had many, 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 many conversations with her manager where, you know, I was told, well, she'd love to hear from you. I emailed her. I tried to reach out to her and say, like, we want you part of this. You're an integral part. Of course you are. You know, I hope when you read this script, you'll see the beauty, the joy, the heartbreak in it that I see, that we have seen. But I can't force her to see it. But we did negotiate through the process, and ultimately the studio said we can't meet those asks of hers. We're not able to do it. We don't see the economics don't make sense for us. So then it's over. But that's not a um, character assassination. That's just the way business works. I have a very sort of emotional view of everything in Hollywood that doesn't happen. I think it all has to do with fear. Somebody's fear. Somebody feels that they're afraid of something. For I don't know what it was. When I met Kim to talk to her about the movie, she was sort of hinting that she was afraid she couldn't do it again. She wasn't that girl anymore, which was also a smokescreen because I was writing for a 62-year-old Samantha. The script is powerful and bright. Here's writer-producer Amy Harris. Michael Patrick tells me that it probably was the best of the three scripts, you know, in terms of the movies. Beautiful. You read it? It was beautiful. Yeah. Fast forward to her 2017 sit-down with Piers Morgan in the aftermath of Sex and the City 3 falling apart. She said, quote, The answer was always no, and a respectful, firm no. She also declared about her relationship with her three co-stars, quote, We've never been friends. But that was child's play compared to the social media dust storm in February of 2018. After Sarah Jessica expressed her condolences at the passing of Kim's brother Christopher, Kim responded to Parker publicly. Quote, My mom asked me today, when will that hypocrite at Sarah Jessica Parker leave you alone? Your continuous reaching out is a painful reminder of how cruel you were then and now, Cottrell wrote in her Instagram caption. Let me make this very clear, if I haven't already. You are not my family. You are not my friend. She added, so I'm writing to tell you one last time to stop exploiting our tragedy in order to restore your nice girl persona. Look, I can't imagine what Kim was going through having lost her brother and the rage and anger she felt about that. And I understand wanting to lash out at someone to lash out at Sarah Jessica to me seemed unbelievably unfair to the point where I felt super angry because were they the closest of friends all the time? No. Did they have a million laughs together throughout seven or eight years of filming? Yes. I feel like if they had been men and it had been the Goodfellas movie, it would have been about, you know, oh, well, someone wanted more money or someone felt this. And it would have sort of been left at that, but because it's women, you know, look, the Hillary Clinton of it all doesn't teach you everything about where we are, which is women have a very complicated relationship with other women. (laughs) I mean, and I looked at the time just to see sort of how people were responding to it. And it was people were so taking sides. and, And I just thought to myself, like, yeah, this is not my reality. I was on this show. (laughs) And I know that those girls showed up on time. 
knew their lines, would sit in those coffee shop scenes and laugh with each other. And that, frankly, even if they hadn't been friends and hadn't liked each other, who cares? They gave you a beautiful, funny show about friendship that was completely believable. And that's your job as an actor. You know, I'm not angry at the monster in the shape of water for not being a monster. (laughs) And I get it. People really felt like they were their friends. And for that, I feel very grateful that people were so invested in the show that it made them angry to think in real life they might have had issues. But yeah, I find it disappointing because I was there from literally day one. (laughs) And so much of what was out in the press about it is just patently false. And I feel pissed about it to this day because I feel like there was a lot of silence being held by people to protect other people who were not being so kind. And it makes me mad. There's villains in the story when the reality is there's just people who were having good and bad days in the world. Did you ever wake up one morning and say to your husband, you know what, I can't take this anymore. And like literally decide to like take Kim and Sarah Jessica and like, like Mo did with Larry and Curly and just kind of like knock their heads together and say, you know what, we have such a long history together. I can't bear to see this happen. And we got to figure this out. I wanted to knock one person's head, (laughs) (laughs) not the other. I really have so much empathy for what Kim was going through, but I really thought her choice and what she did was wrong. And I don't understand why she did that because whatever the past was, those were four women who did care about each other. And I understood where her anger and her rage was coming in terms of what she was going through. I didn't know why she chose to take it out on Sarah Jessica. I think deep down at the bottom of it, why Kim said no wasn't because of the women. I think it was really deep down. She wanted to move on. And that's a completely legitimate choice to want to go on and do something else. What isn't the right choice is to claim that that choice is because these other people were monsters, which they simply were not. If she had just said from the beginning if you're doing this movie, figure out a way to do it where I'm not written into it because I don't want to come back. I want to live in London. I want to be here. I don't want to go back to that time of my life anymore. I think that's legitimate. Lots of people make that decision in their lives that they're done and that's fine. But I think it was that it it seemed like things were really moving forward and then suddenly the rug was sort of pulled out and it was the reasons for it didn't seem to match what actually happened for me in my mind. And look, There's a lot of stuff out there now like, oh, well, these people were super close with Sarah Jessica. Well, I met every single one of those people on the same day, basically. (laughs) So I had no horse in the race, dog in the fight. I met all four women basically within the same few weeks when we started to shoot the show. And there were people who inspired me and made me want to be the kind of female producer and woman on a set that, you know, I hope I have become. And those people have really stayed in my life because of that. Look, Sarah Jessica was number one on the call sheet. And I think she almost hugged every single person on the crew every night and thanked them for their hard work. That kind of stuff for me really stuck. (laughs) The falling through of the third movie proved to be difficult for fans and cast members alike. Willie Garson among them. We were very close to doing it. The only people in the cast who saw the script were the three women, the four women, sorry, 
and Michael, obviously. And from what I can tell, it was the most lovely, fantastic script, very moving and very satisfying. And I was just wildly disappointed, and I was more disappointed in the aftermath of everything that went down. I just wish we had gone for the whatever, 12 weeks? I mean, how long out of our lives would it have taken to make the new movie? And it's a big bummer still, and it's never not going to be a bummer. My feeling was that things were said that were just not true. And you can't live in someone else's body, so you don't know what they're feeling and how they're processing something. But we were there, and I'm confused as to one person's take on it when it's one person and there's 200 other people there. So that to me is confusing and I have sorrow from it. The one person in question says that we were never friends or that, you know, it's all been a misery. That was not my experience. And I feel, I don't want to say insulted by it, but I feel sad. I feel sad for that person and I feel sad for us and I feel sad for our audience that the attempt seemed to have been made to do exactly what you just said, to take the shine off of something that was about love and togetherness and support and friendship. That's what the entire project was about from the beginning. It wasn't about fashion. It wasn't about talking about sex. It was about love and togetherness and support of each other. And I just am lost and surprised that someone felt so differently that felt the need to go into the project and kind of rip it apart. But I feel like if this part was an episode, Charlotte would say, we got to figure this out. We got to sort this out because this doesn't make sense. And it's too sad anyway. If I thought that would work, I would do it. By the way, I said Charlotte, not Kristen. I, didn't I know. Mean that That's your... okay. I am Charlotte, and if I thought it would work in life, I would do it. Do you know what I'm saying? Was there a time I, when you I thought about do doing that? Uh, no, it's a lot more complicated than that. It's a lot more complicated than that. Because I do think of you as Switzerland. <laughs> That's so funny. You know, in some ways, Cynthia is Switzerland. <laughs> I shouldn't even be saying that. I'm not totally Switzerland. I'm not exactly Charlotte. You know, I have probably more opinions or whatever. I don't know. Charlotte has a really strong opinion, so I don't know why I'm saying that. I think Cynthia is more of a Switzerland, number one. Number two, I think Cynthia is better at navigating. I have a lot of emotions. I'm the emotional one. Do you remember the scene when Carrie, I almost said Sarah, when Carrie's going to go to Paris and we're at the dinner table, we're at the, the posh restaurant and I'm just like crying. That's me. That would be me, right? I'm emotional. I'm emotional, emotional, emotional. So I'm not the best person to be mending the things or whatever, though I could try to mend it from love and emotion. If I thought it would work in life, I would do it. But I, I think there's other issues that have to do with other people's personal things that are none of my business in some ways. It, it, it's tough when you've worked with someone for 20 years. I, I want to have respect. I have respect for everybody. I, I, it's very hard because we were crushed by not doing that third film. It's so hard to get a film starring four women greenlit, even when you are a household name around the world. Again, you can't live in someone else's thoughts, so I don't know why someone would have felt the need to do that. There comes a point when if there's no other way we 
if the person is not responding to you in any other forum, either by email or phone or, God forbid, in person, which none of us do anymore anyway, and so this is a way that I'm going to reach out because this is the only way they're going to get it, apparently, because I'm not getting responded to by email or phone call or anything. And I want you to know and I want the world to know that we're all thinking about you and we care about you. And you would, you would try to do that. Is that what you're saying? Well, I've tried to do that. I know that other people have tried to do that. And, you know, I can't speak for anyone else, but I know that Sarah Jessica had tried and certainly other people. And if it's really, really hard to talk to someone, but you're dying to express something to them to let them know that you care, certainly in a difficult time, then it happened on social media. To attack someone for doing that when you're not responding to them elsewhere is a tough thing. I don't know the answer to that, like how to work through that. But at the end of the day, at least you could say to yourself that you tried. I believe that. I also don't, and this is my fault as a person, I have a really low BS meter or the opposite. I guess I have a high BS meter. You mean in terms of tolerance for BS? Yes. So I don't like when lies are spread as truths that are not true. So I myself said some snarky things on social media because I was not going to sit by and let certain things be said that were just completely not true. We did the first movie during a time of turmoil in our country. We did the second movie. We were at two wars and a recession was happening. People really respond to this and it gives people a sense of belonging and community. And I honestly believe that our country is in a very difficult time now. And in my opinion, I feel that this is our job to do this. It's not just to look pretty and make money. It's actually we are in service. That is what entertainment should be. And so I was very disappointed that we didn't get to give this to the literally millions of people who were looking forward to this. And the person we're not so hiddenly speaking of is brilliant, brilliant actress, brilliant on the piece, a brilliant part of the story with never any thought of like, oh, that person isn't perfect for this role and fantastic in it. So that's even more disappointing. Is there a part of you that somehow still holds out hope I can't hold out hope because it's been such a brutal year of disappointment, basically in everything. Uh, but, but certainly in terms of this, it's just been such brutal disappointment. As you and I are talking today, I believe it's October 19th. We were supposed to begin filming October 20th uh, last year. So it's been one year of just, oh, that didn't happen, and we all wish that this was coming out and was a gift to be given. This is going to hurt us all, I assume, for years. I know that I'm not over it, and to be honest, it's a hard thing to be this close to doing something that you know will not only help yourself and your career and your, certainly your bank account, as cheesy as that sounds, but that a lot of people really care about. And I still don't know how to process it. 
way we decided to get married. It's all business, no romance. That's not the way you propose to someone. This is. Carrie Bradshaw, love of my life. Will you marry me? I really didn't enjoy any of the movies. I thought I really hate corny stuff, and it could be because I'm a little bit of a cynic. Like the whole thing at the end of the movie in the shoe closet, hated it. Hated the thing at the end of the movie where I gave her, after I felt she deceived me, and then I say, well, it's time I give you a bigger diamond ring hated it i just hate the cornball shit and i thought it was just really or let's use a different word sentimental you know and overly romantic without any feet in realism were you relieved when uh, three didn't happen then no because i heard it was and i didn't read it but i heard it was really a superior script probably having learned the mistakes from not the first two but at least the second one one of these channels has reruns. They take out all the good, dirty stuff. But And I watch it, and I go, oh, it really was good. The humor, you know, just little bits and pieces that I see every now and then. I'm, I'm a big fan of the series. And, well, I hate to say this because I, you know, adore Michael Patrick King, but I just really never really, I'm a team player, but I never really enjoyed the movies. I thought they were sentimental as hell. The, even the humor didn't match the series. The third movie's still going to happen. Something's going to happen. I don't know what it is. I have ideas. <laughs> I share them with Michael. <laughs> you know, some of them are crazy. And maybe it is over. And I'm okay with that if it is over, too. Michael Patrick King describes how Kim was never fully comfortable with Sarah Jessica Parker being the star of the show and says that Kim's desire to be on equal footing in terms of pay and recognition prevented her from ever feeling at home on Sex in the City and ultimately led to the implosive collapse of that evasive third movie. Did it ever manifest itself during the series? Always before and after. Never during. Before and after a scene or like a season or something? Before a season. Always got dicey before a season. Contracts, weirdness. During the work, amazing. Backstage, where I wasn't, not so great. But I deliberately ran to my room to be in love with everyone so that I can write them all. So who was taking care of uh, backstage? They were all taking care of each other as much as possible. There was nothing. It was subliminal and private, whatever went on. But it was impalpable to you when they came on the set? Nope. So unpalpable, so you could not feel it, that it led me to believe it wasn't real. That that wasn't reality. What was the reality was the fact that they love working together. I mean, this is not Jim Brooks thinking, Shirley and Deborah are not going to be able to do the scene today because they're yelling at each other right now. Never. No, it was much more subterranean, much more fake, much more created. Also, the, the ladies that decided to not participate in it were superheroes. They were just like remembering why we were all there. That's why it was so hard for me to believe. Everybody was so respectful that no one ever really vomited out what they were feeling on anyone. Sarah Jessica Parker's agent, Kevin Huvane. You know what the great thing about Sarah is, I think from starting in the business at such a young age, she really appreciated the spot she was in. She's one of the most decent people I have in my life. And how she treats people, I'd like to clone her. 
you know, you'd walk on that set and she knew all the crew people's names and they loved her because she took responsibility for their lives too. It was, I remember when she got pregnant, she was like, oh, we're going to have to postpone and these people, what happens if we, you know, are they going to get taken care of while we're out? And that was her main concern, not just get me in and out. And she worried about the sound guys and the cameramen. And I mean, I love her, like love her. I love her for her decency and her intelligence, and I love her for her kindness. First of all and foremost, she's a family member. That's the main cloth, one of seven. So in a show environment, she's phenomenal as a team player. She knew everybody's name. She loved building something together. We were a family. She's warm. Her door's open. I used to call her the star next door because she was really the neighbor girl in your neighborhood that you loved, but she could be the star as well. It was a wonderful ecosystem to the last day. I mean, I think that's why we all came back time and time again. It's nice that you ask about it in terms of four women because I think, you know, given recent conversations, it's as if everybody forgot that there were four women on a set. It wasn't just myself and Kim. There were four women on the set and there were a bunch of men and there was a huge crew and we were all interacting and Kim didn't work every day and Cynthia didn't work every day and Kristen didn't work every day and everybody was sort of changing and rotating schedules. I was there every day, I will say, but it was an extremely functional place. Not only that, it was a really happy place and that didn't mean that we were best friends. None of us went home after an 80 hour, for me, I was working 80, 90, 100 hour weeks, and called up Kim, Kristen, or Cindy and said, hey, let's have dinner. No, we were all going off to spend time with our families, our friends, our children, our close friends who we sort of walked away from for all these months when we shot. And what's so curious to me is that no one ever asked that of Sopranos. No one ever said to Jimmy, Hey, do you call uh, what's-his-name at night and hang out and have dinner? Did you spend Christmas with him? Did you buy him a Christmas gift? No, because, of course, they went home to their families and their friends and their loved ones, and in their hiatus, they traveled, or they did a play, or they did a movie. The focus on our interaction off the set, of which there was no time, you know, especially for me, was bizarre and sexist. And it's so frustrating because it also suggests that there was, like, fighting on the set. I never had a fight with anybody on that set. I mean, Michael and I actually fought. Michael had disagreements with me, with other people. Like, that was very common. Like, that's how we got our work done. But it wasn't like a epidemic, and it wasn't like the culture. It wasn't a fighty culture. If Michael and I disagreed, it was unusual. I just think it was a show about women. It was a new idea. I mean, as Michael will tell you, when the first movie came out, Time out, you know, we were on the press junket like everybody else, you know, Tom Cruise and Downey, and they all had movies coming out, and Will Smith, and they were all out promoting their movies, promoting their movies. We were big Warner Brothers movies. We were out promoting our movie happily. And Time Out put tape on our mouths. And we were like, what? It was basically like, shut up. And I was like, wow. No one put tape on Tom Cruise's mouth or Downey's or Will Smith's, or anybody else. Like, we weren't out there more than anybody else. And if we were, it was what everybody else was doing, not us. Like, I'll never forget going to Germany on a press junket, and the Germans kept asking me, 
are you buying a Christmas present for Kim Cattrall? Did you get her a Christmas present? I was like, what? And if I say no, we're in a fight. And if I say yes, that's not true. I didn't get a Christmas present for, I don't remember, you know? It came out. And it's sad to me that it came out because I don't want people to think of that when they watch the show. And that was our whole goal, is that you watch the show and you have the clean experience of the characters. We didn't want other things to influence that. We didn't want there to be negativity out there that would influence that. Now, we had to work hard the whole time against the journalism people men, I should say, and occasionally women who would try to fan those flames. And it was super frustrating because at the same time, we would literally work next door on the soundstage at Silver Cup to the Sopranos guys. And we would see them arguing, okay? And we'd be like, does anyone ever ask them? Does anyone ever ask them? And I mean, look, they were creative arguments or whatever. You're like family with these people, right? So of course you're going to have things you disagree about. It's not that crazy. It's not that weird. Yet, when it's women, of course, then it has to have, like, entire articles written about it. And people have to be the good guy and the bad guy and the what, it, it, good girl and bad girl, whatever it is, which is insane. And it gets very warped. Like, the thing that's frustrating now is that I feel like there's a very odd narrative out there. And I don't know how we're going to fix it. I don't know if we can fix it. We didn't want this to happen to the ladies out there who love those four ladies. You know, we didn't want this to happen. And everybody was so bending over backwards to keep the light versus the dark on the show. So what do you think ultimately happened between the second and the third? A revisionist history? People do things. They make stuff up depending on what story they want to tell themselves. All I know is that show was spectacular for everyone involved. It was a spectacular success. And you have to work very hard to make that Sex in the City story not be something that was good for you. And for some reason, Kim thinks something happened to her on that show that was not good for her. How often do you guys have sex? Snap. Miranda, please. What? She's three. She doesn't know what it means. I'm 41, and I still don't know what it means. I know, but she is repeating everything. If I'd known the girl talk was going to be on lockdown, I wouldn't have flown 3,000 miles. No, we can talk. Let's just not use that word. How often do you guys color? Thank you. Well, I can't color enough. I could color all day, every day if I had my way. I would use every crayon in my box. We get it. You love to color. American Express is reimagining solutions for small businesses with the launch of the new Business Gold Card. Business Gold helps businesses get the most out of their spending by enabling card members to automatically earn four times membership reward points on the top two select categories where their business spends the most each month. Business Gold also provides access to a suite of solutions, including a built-in pay-over-time feature, giving business owners the flexibility and tools they need to successfully run and grow their business. From managing cash flow to hiring top talent, new Business Gold card members can optimize their productivity by taking advantage of unique, limited-time offers from G Suite and ZipRecruiter as well. To learn more about the full benefits and terms, visit amex.co slash business. Will and Grace, Roseanne, Murphy Brown. Yes, reboots seem to be flourishing as 21st century television sucks up to any audience possible. Could Sex in the City be rebeat? That is, rebooted, done over today? If so, what would have to change? And most importantly, could they find a part for Flo, the indomitable insurance lady? 
I do think that it is a show of its time. It's a relic, you know, it's a period piece. The reason the show can be watched today and is with such enthusiasm and more and more audiences watch it, I think it's not because of the socioeconomic and political stuff, it's the friendship and the search for love. Like, where is home? What is love? Like, how do I find it? What is contentment? What satisfaction? How do I answer those questions for myself? Who am I in the world as a woman? I think all the stuff with big and money, the lack of diversity, the lack of women of color on the show, the vision of New York as this aspirational place that is far more for those with money. Like, that's of our time. You couldn't do that today. You know, phones, the internet, the way we communicated, men and women, how they addressed one another, what was appropriate, what wasn't appropriate. Like, those rules, those don't even exist. It would just have to be a different story now. But it was completely a story of its very specific time and place, its politics, this city, money in the city. You know, this was before September 11th. Like, everything was different. Let me see. I mean, I think you could do a show like this now. I just think it would be a very different show. It would have to be more diverse and not just racially diverse. I think it would it couldn't be this romp of the super wealthy, right? Right. The disparity of wealth. The in, disparity of in wealth or the right, the bubble that the show exists in, I think would be really hard to do now. And I think one of the great thing was how much female empowerment it showed. And then it showed the flip side, too. I mean, I think that's one thing that girls went even farther with, is show that actually sometimes women, characters that we love and admire are having sex that's really horrible and that they don't even want to be having, but somehow they find themselves doing it. You know, And I think that the female empowerment is really real, but I think there would probably be a lot more examination of ways in which women find themselves in situations that they don't want to be in. I mean, there are many elements that Sex and the City brought into our culture that disturb me, but that's one of them. Materialism, how it defined New York City and how New York City became that definition. It's a pretty tough show to do if you were to do it today because not just the lack of diversity. No, but I... it's all there in place for you. It's all gilded in gold now. It's all been Trumpicized. It's all fashion everywhere instead of in one part. There's no neighborhood left. It's, you know, the meatpacking district is all the Soho house and all that. And all of that was the kind of places these people went in the show. So actually, I think what would be hard to do would be to do the original law and order in Manhattan. There's nothing left of that New York, really. I've been complaining about this aspect of New York for, I don't know, almost 18 years. And a lot of people have said to me, yeah, well, it was your show that changed the city. And I was like, yeah, you're probably right. I think a lot of people say that. I was talking with Patricia Field yesterday, and she said she stopped counting how many people a day say they moved to New York because of sex in the city. For all the wrong reasons, yeah. Sometimes people, uh, particularly with a series that goes on, they feel like they're going to be inextricably linked to that character. Was there a point when the show started to kind of take off that you thought, am I going to lose myself or am I going to become her in the public mind? No. Or? <laughs> I mean, I feel as if that's my burden. So the projection for me is a privilege. It was such a joyful, just singular experience. The working part of it, the day-to-day, even the long hours, the friendships, the relationship that I got to establish with the city that I love, most importantly, the storytelling. And the fact that there was an audience that connected so much 
they are as responsible for the show as we were. So I feel like that connection and that association is honestly something that an actor would want. I mean, you want to be part of something that connects. So I feel like I said, like the burden is on me to try to find other characters. And if that means saying no to the things that are familiar, that's, you know, always the challenge is to say no because you want to be a working person. But that's my problem. It created tremendous opportunity for me to do the leads in plays, to do even the leads in movies, to do big, substantial roles. And yes, certainly this is always going to be the number one thing on my resume, the thing that my obituary will lead with, all that stuff. There are certainly roles that I didn't get because the producers thought, oh, everyone will just think of her as Miranda and it'll be distracting. But overwhelmingly, since the show and even in the off-season when I'm still doing the show, I've been such a variety of roles and that some of them have things in common with Miranda and some of them have nothing in common with Miranda. So I think I'm, I'm lucky also to be the age that I am. I think once you hit 45, the roles for women just become much more interesting. I don't know if you've ever seen this Instagram account, Every Outfit SATC. They're great ladies, and they are very funny, and they are funny writers. And um, it started, we should all be Mirandas. That was the beginning. And then I started following them, and they sent me a T-shirt, and I sleep in it, and it says, I'm a Miranda. And then when she ran for governor, it was like, I was like, I'm a Charlotte, but I'm voting for Miranda. You could get, like, all the different Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, that's Which is really cute. But I think our point of our show was not to judge. So I don't think there should be value judgments so much. But- you know, I kind of understand, too. And obviously, I do love Charlotte. I mean, I certainly do not take offense when people come up and tell me they're Charlotte or that they name their children Charlotte. I'm super excited, obviously. You know. Wow, they named their children Charlotte. Oh, yeah, I know a bunch of Charlottes. We really were invested in the organism itself. The best part is meeting people, talking to people, because for years... I didn't have a way of communicating, saying thank you, conveying gratitude, because this audience is the only reason... We were on the air is the exchange, this transactional relationship that happened. They paid to have HBO in their homes. They paid. They made an investment in us, and I hope we invested equally in them. And friendships, and you see four women walking down the street, you know, you see four women sitting together at a table eating together. I was sitting on the stoop the other day with my friends after dinner, and this young man came up to me, and he was like, can I take a picture with you? My mother loves you. You know, he was 22 or something, and... I mean, it's the reason we want to be actors. It might be a no-brainer looking back at a hit series that grew into the status of landmark show with extremely and exquisitely talented people involved. What a shame then that the unity on display for basically all of the run was unraveled wildly by such bitter statements and social media posts. How to explain it? To understand the very end, let's go back to the very beginning when Darren Starr wanted to build the entire series around a dialectic a question that Carrie would ask and her three friends would help answer in the course of each episode. It was as if the collapse of the third movie and all the icky angst that resulted led directly to Sex in the City's final Carrie question. Can four friends go through a life-changing journey, face literal spotlights bigger than those seen on the show itself or at any Hollywood premiere, and still stay together? Does extraordinary happiness along the way guarantee a happy ending? Maybe there are no happy endings, in life or in the movies, because the word endings itself has unhappiness built right into it. And because the happier everyone was during the run of the show, the unhappier they are likely to be when the awful moment finally arrives. It's over. Go home. 
Turn out the lights and try not to cry. Remember, people are watching. Thanks as always to Chris Corcoran, Spencer Brown, Nick Friedman, Lauren Cohen, Pam Kramer, Josephina Francis, and the rest of the team at Cadence 13. And specifically to my main man, Chris Basil, who conducts a masterclass in editing each episode, and Terrence Malangone, who always makes coming to the studio a joy. Thanks to all of you for listening to us in your homes, cars, through your headphones, vapes, and toaster ovens. We're doing this for you, so if you have any questions you'd like to share, please feel free to hit me up at james at jamesandrewmiller.com. And finally, equal parts love and gratitude to my wonderful daughter, Sophie Alex Miller, who was the inspiration for this chapter, who convinced me to buy her a pair of SJP shoes, and who undoubtedly will be the subject of a documentary one day on one of her stellar creations. For Origins, this is Jim Miller. Cheers. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.